Well, good morning, church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is John Hayes, and I have the joy of serving as your kids pastor here at Grace. This morning, I have the privilege to preach through our text this morning. And as Ralph said, we'll be in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now, our text today is going to answer a question that arises from the passage that Brent preached for us last week. If you remember, Brent preached through the series of texts that were commanding the believer to submit to authority, submit to earthly authority with confidence. And we said that they do that because we are loved by Jesus, and by so doing, we are serving Jesus. Well, there's a logical question that arises out of being told to do this. And it is, what if the authority I'm being told to submit to is unjust? What if they're not an authority that I think I should be submitting myself to? What do we do then? In this text, Peter is going to answer this question. We're going to see a couple of different reasons why Peter is telling these believers that they need to submit to these earthly authorities, regardless of circumstance. And the first is this, is that we are to set our hope fully on Jesus as we submit to earthly authority. This is going to be verses 13 through 17. In this section, Peter will stress the importance of fixing our eyes on Jesus as we suffer. Because regardless of our circumstances, he is our hope. Now, we're going to start in verse 13. And verse 13 and 14 shows us that there is nothing unbelievers can do to eternally harm a believer. Okay? What this means is we have nothing to fear. He starts with this question. He anticipates their question. And in classic New Testament style, he responds with a question of his own. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Right? He anticipates this question, and he heads it off. He says, who can harm you if you are committed to following God? Who can harm you if you are God's? Because your hope is secure. Now, as we're about to see, this does not mean that we shouldn't expect suffering or heartache. That's to be expected. But this doesn't change the fact that our hope is in Jesus. Now, Peter is pointing them to a reality that is beyond their circumstances. He's saying, yes, they may be an unjust authority, but regardless, put your hope in Jesus. You see, we suffer, but God loves us enough, and he loves those around us enough to shine through our suffering, to use suffering for good for us and for those around us. And he poses this question of who can harm you? If the worst that we can experience is persecution to the point of death, that's the, the ultimate fear that we can have from man. And we know that death is just the gateway to eternity with our God, then why should we be afraid? If the worst they can do is ultimately to our gain, then what do we have to fear from man? Now, Paul states this exact same idea when he's encouraging the Roman church. The Roman church was undergoing persecution, and there were divisive issues in the Roman church, and Paul writes this to them. He just finished saying that the sufferings they're currently experiencing are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to them. And he says this in Romans 8.31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? 
If death itself, if eternal separation and sin could not stop God, if the pure wickedness of everything that the earth could throw at him could not stop him, and he has overcome all things, then why should we fear? What can we experience that God himself has not already overcome? Peter goes on to tell these believers, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's not divorcing the reality of hope from the reality of suffering. He's saying you will suffer, but that doesn't change our hope. So we look forward to that regardless of circumstances. Okay, I'm going to have you flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 12. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. While you're flipping, we are picking up with Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And he is teaching his followers what it means to follow the kingdom of God, to live in a way that shows you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And we're in the Beatitudes section, these blessed are statements. Jesus so far has said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, and the peacemakers. And he ends with this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, when we suffer, we're reminded that as Hebrew says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that for time after time, God has used suffering to sharpen and strengthen his people. When we experience suffering, we are experiencing what everyone who has followed Jesus before us has already walked. This is a path well trodden. Our reward is in heaven. You see, we're not expecting riches or ease or power or influence in this life. Those aren't bad things. That's not what we hope in. Rather, we hope for the reward that is held for us in heaven, earned by Christ himself. So suffering pushes us to fix our eyes on Christ. Okay, to help me demonstrate this, I need three brave elementary students who want to come join me on stage. Be brave. Raise a hand if you feel up for it. Wow, there's like 100 hands up. This is awesome. Who wants to do it? Who wants to do it? Yes, Zach, come on up. Thank you, Zach. I need two more. Yes, Chase, come on up, buddy. One more. One more. Am I missing one? Ethan? Yeah. All right. Come on up. Everybody give it up for our volunteers. Great job, guys. Y'all can come stand right over here. Thank you for being brave. Okay. Now, here's what I'm going to do, okay? I'm going to give you a task to complete, and then you're going to do it, okay? And then when you're done with that one, I'll give you your next task. Are you ready? Okay, your first task is this. Hop on one foot 10 times. Nicely done. Okay, great job. And Chase and Ethan. There you go. Okay, you ready for your next task? Your next task is do five jumping jacks. Get our exercise this morning. Great job. Okay, Chase, 
and Ethan. Great job. Okay, now you ready? This is a really hard one, okay? Touch your toes. Great job, great job. Okay, Chase and Ethan. Oh, sorry, Ethan. I got you, buddy. Okay, last one, are you ready? Spin around three times. Great job. Okay, Chase, there you go. And Ethan, there you go. Okay, great job, guys. Yeah. Okay, well, Zach, how do you feel right now? Sad. Yeah, sad. Do you think this was very fair? No. But Zach, what if I told you that you can have this? You can look inside, there's a lot of candy. I didn't need any, I promise. That is yours, you can keep that. All right, everybody, you can go take your seat. Great job, give it up for them. It's yours. Now, I would ask you a question. Which of these would you rather have? Low candy here and there, or the big bag of candy? Well, I would rather have the big bag of candy, right? And this is a silly and an imperfect example, but it shows the tension we find ourselves in. When we go through life, we're confronted with the fact that life isn't fair. Suffering happens, and we're tempted to grab some of that candy for ourselves, to say, yes, I trust and I'm submitted to Jesus. Man, I really want a new car. So I trust you, but maybe I'll find a little bit of satisfaction in a new car. Yes, I trust you, I'm submitted to you, but maybe I want a bigger house, so I'll find my satisfaction in a bigger house. And we take these gifts that aren't bad, but instead of finding our satisfaction in God, we find our satisfaction in the gifts, right? And that is the tension we find ourselves in. But what if we lived every day knowing that at the end was a prize greater than we could ever hope for, right? Not only would we get maybe a little bit of candy, a little taste of candy, but we would get all the candy we could ever eat. Take it a step further, yes, we could find some satisfaction here, but in reality, there's coming a day when we can find all of our satisfaction in the one who created us to hunger and desire and to dream. And he will fulfill all of those perfectly in himself. Believer, this is the hope we have, that God has made us. There's coming a day when he will fulfill us in himself, right? Suffering is temporary. When we're confronted with the way that life isn't fair and suffering comes, we remember that it's temporary and the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is our reality. But suffering becomes then an opportunity for us to witness and share with a watching world why we have hope. So this is to our second point. As we suffer well, it points others to the hope we have in Jesus. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense who any, who, who, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That is quite a sentence, right? There's a lot in there. Kids, don't write like this on your papers. It won't go well. There's a lot to unpack. 
But Peter starts with this. He tells them where their concern should be. He tells them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Right? Rather than being concerned with man and making our name great, we are called to set God apart, set Jesus apart as the Lord of our life, to live in submission to him rather than fear of man. Don't fear man, fear God. When we live like this, it should cause others to wonder. As we saw last week as Brent preached for us, we're not concerned with being like everyone else. We're not concerned with making our names great. Rather, we get to joyfully submit ourselves to God. When the world sees this, right, that's a countercultural way to live. To say, it's not my name, it's God. Right? It's not my glory, it's God. When we live in a world that is so glory-hungry and wants to be seen and wants to be known, but we have been seen and we have been known by the God of the universe. See, and this hope that we have is unshakable. Outside of Christ, there's not a lot that we can hope in. I think 2020 has highlighted that for us. There is nothing normal about 2020, right? Everyday things like going out to eat with friends now becomes a charged, controversial, tense event, right? The economy, the election, all of these things are tense and charged and controversial. Without Christ, what would we hope in? What is steady in our world? See, for all of our education, and all of our betterment as a society, we still don't have the tools we need to make our lives secure and steady. There are forces greater than us at work, and our lives can be turned upside down in a moment. But our hope is only secure in Jesus. This is where the hope of the gospel meets a hungry, lost, hurting world. To say, we hunger for hope. We need security in something. Let me tell you about the one who is secure. Let me tell you about the one who has taken me from death to life and can do the same for you. This is the power of the gospel. And Peter says when these opportunities emerge, we should present this with gentleness and respect. We saw last week that this is the same words used to describe slaves submitting to their masters and wives submitting to their husbands. We can only do this if we have a right view of God. Right? We can only love people well when we understand the love with which God has loved us. When we see how God saw me and my sin and brokenness and death, and I brought nothing to the table, but in kindness, he brought me from death to life by his grace and his mercy. That shouldn't produce in me arrogance to say I'm better than anybody else. I have nothing good to offer, but I've been loved by a God who is steady. That should produce in us humility. It's humility to love our neighbors. See, because we respect and understand God, we can then respect and submit to earthly authorities. And yet, we're called to give the defense. We're called to give it well. We have to remember that we are not the ones who change hearts. It is God who changes hearts. In verse 16, Peter says this, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, we must live in a way that our conscience 
It's clean. To live in a way that's in accordance to what God has called us to. This means we can't repay evil for evil. We can't repay reviling for reviling. We can't act nasty because somebody is mean to us. Isn't it funny, parents, that this is exactly what we teach our kids as soon as they can exert their wills? Just because somebody's mean to you doesn't mean you can be mean back. Just because somebody's mean, you still have to forgive them. Right? And yet, these are the truths that we all stumble over still. This is the temptation of my heart to make my name great rather than forgiving when I'm cursed. So when we do this, when we give this defense, when we give it well, we do it with gentleness and respect, with a clean conscience, what does Peter say we should expect back? He says, so that when you are slandered. He says that we should expect slander, to be rejected. This is not a guarantee that everybody's going to love you and life is going to be easy. Our good behavior doesn't mean that others are going to be kind back. It means we're aware, right, that we're surrounded by people who, just like we were, are lost and dead in transgressions. And so we meet that with kindness. I want to remind you uh, real quick of a verse that we read two weeks ago. It's 1 Peter 2.12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak, e- uh, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So your actions should confront people with the coming reality of the kingdom of God. When people see how we repay reviling with love or evil with forgiveness, when we love even when it's costly, this causes people to wonder, why would you do that? See, in this, we are all missionaries. We are all placed in a specific place with people around us who need the hope of the gospel. And the way we live should set us apart not from a place of pride as we've seen, but from a place of humility and servantness. Servanthood, that's not a word. Servanthood, right? We gladly become the lowly because our God became low for us. Peter ends this passage by saying in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Here Peter lays out two kinds of suffering. The first is unjust suffering, suffering for doing good. The second kind is just suffering, suffering for evil, right? Kids, imagine that we're in school together, and I always steal your pencils and your pens, and I lie about it, and then I make fun of you for always losing your pens and pencils. Would you want to be my friend? Is that the kind of friend you would like? No. So when I live in that way, and then I realize... I don't have any friends. That's the natural consequence of my sin, right? In the same way Peter is telling them, be sure that when you have suffering in your life, it is because you're suffering for doing good, right? Not the natural consequences of our sin. This is a hard calling. This isn't easy. But Peter now points to the perfect example of this, who is Jesus himself. This brings us to our second big point for the morning. See, Jesus, after suffering, was exalted. Jesus, through his suffering, has victory. Just as Jesus was exalted after suffering, 
we too have an assured hope for future exaltation after suffering. In verse 18, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here we see that Jesus himself has followed the path from suffering to exaltation. He walked this. You couldn't get a better picture of unjust suffering than Jesus. He was the Son of God, the one through whom all things were created. Right? He was the spotless Lamb, perfectly upheld all the commands of the law. And yet, He willingly suffered unjustly for us. See, suffering was the means that bought our salvation. Jesus went willingly to the cross to purchase salvation for all who will believe. This is where his suffering is unique from ours. His suffering atoned or paid for the price of sin. Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.22 states, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin has a cost. God is just, therefore that cost must be paid. But he himself paid the debt that we owed. And yet, though he was put to death in the flesh, he did not stay dead. He was made alive in the spirit, defeating sin and death once and for all. In this, Jesus blazed the trail for all who will follow him. Suffering, suffering, leading to glory. Tom Schreiner a scholar at Southern Seminary said this of Christ's example for us. He said, Just as suffering was the pathway to exaltation for Christ, so also suffering is the prelude to glory for the believers. See, when, we're suffer, when we suffer, we're reminded that this is not our home. We're reminded that we were made for something more than this and that God has a plan to make all things new and our hope is in him. See, we should expect to suffer as Christ suffered because we are following in his footsteps. We don't do this so that our suffering would forgive our sins. Christ has paid for that. We do this to proclaim what Christ has done. Through our suffering, we proclaim the hope we have in Jesus. So believer, be a good proclaimer. When suffering comes, be a good proclaimer. Don't be tempted to grumbling or complaining is how the world handles suffering. Be bold, knowing that our suffering is an opportunity to point to the hope we have in Christ. As we go on, we see that Jesus also has victory over all who are opposed to him. Verse 19 and 20, Peter says this, in which he, that is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, this is a highly debated passage, has been for a long time, but the point here is clear. Jesus has victory over all who are opposed to him. Now, really briefly, I want to lay out the like, main ideas of how this passage is interpreted. I'm going to give you the quick flyover for all of it, okay? So, here are the four main ideas. The first is this. Jesus proclaimed to the people in Noah's day, spirits in prison were the people in Noah's day, through Noah while he built the ark. 
Second is this. Peter was referring to Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Jesus between his death and resurrection. The third is this. The spirits refer to the people who perished during the flood. The last one is this. This is describing Christ's proclamation of victory over the evil angels. Now, I believe that the correct interpretation is the last one here, that this is referring to Jesus' proclamation of victory over evil angels. I'll show you why really quickly. If you would flip over to Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Now, this is the passage right before the flood, and some have argued that this is the high point of sin that leads to the flood. Genesis 6 says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So here, these angels, here referred to as the sons of God. It's a common Old Testament way to refer to angels. Were imprisoned because of their wicked deeds. They left their domain and went to the domain of God's image bearers. And they abused and took advantage of God's creation. See, you couldn't get a more abusive, a more rebellious group than these angels. Parents, thankfully, this text is not explicit, but we know what has happened. And if even these are held to account, then we know that none will escape the justice of God. There will be none who fails to receive the justice that they deserve. God will have justice over everything. What a comfort this is to know that evil doesn't just reign unchecked with no hope for justice. When we look at a world that is full of injustice, we know that God is working to bring all to account. And as we saw, this should make us plead and pray for those who persecute us because we know what the future brings for everyone. All will give an account. This should move us to compassion. It should move us to pleading for those who would do evil to us. We know that they are not the enemy. And we pray for those who persecute us. Because we know that if even these rebellious angels were held to account, all will give an account. Peter then says that God's patience waited in the days of Noah. See, God would have been just in wiping out completely mankind and restarting with creation without warning or mercy. See, we had sinned in our open rebellion against God Creation was broken. And yet in mercy, God spared Noah and his family. And while Noah built this ark, God withheld his judgment until the right time. When the ark was built, his judgment was poured out to the face of the earth. And while Noah built the ark, all the people around were given a chance to repent and believe. And yet they scorned and they mocked Noah. And by extension, they scorned and they mocked God. And yet, in mercy, Noah and his family were spared. 
This brings us to our last section for the day. There's going to be a link now between the ark and the flood and baptism. This is what verses 21 and 22 say. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see, just as Noah and his family were rescued from the flood by the ark, just as they were brought through judgment by the ark, in the same way as believers, we are brought through judgment by the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism symbolizes this being brought from death to life through Jesus. Imagine if the ark had failed to do its job. Imagine the ark had sprung a leak. What would have happened to Noah and his family? They would have perished alongside the rest of humanity. But then God in his mercy preserved them. In the same way, if Christ hadn't been resurrected and were baptized into the death of Christ, but there's no newness of life because there's no resurrection, then imagine baptism. Baptism would be a morbid affair, right? But praise God that Jesus was resurrected and so we have hope that we too can walk in newness of life with him. See, when we're baptized, it shows this outward, it shows outwardly something that has happened within us. God in his mercy has brought us from death to life. And we are proclaiming that. This is why Peter says our baptism is not merely an external act. We're not removing dirt from our body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, we're not bringing anything but a repentant heart. We're pleading with God to change us. And we see all through scripture that even our repentance is a gift of God. It's by grace that we have been saved. So we plead for this clean conscience. And we've been made new in Christ. We are given this clean conscience. Which is why, backing up, he says earlier, don't violate that clean conscience. Have a good conscience when you give your defense. Live in such a way that, that is in line with the reality of who we've been made in Christ. Peter ends with this. He says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, our hope is secure in Jesus because he has victory over everything. Nothing can overthrow him, overwhelm him, overpower him. Our hope is held secure in Jesus. This morning, if you don't feel like you have this clean conscience, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you with a verse. It's 1 John 1, 9. It says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've not confessed to God, don't wait. Don't wait. This is the moment. God, full of mercy, waits to welcome you with love and forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus. There is no sin too great. There's no heart too hard. There's no soul too far gone where God cannot save. 
after service, we'll be down in the front. We'll have pastors down front. And we would love to pray with you. If this is where you find yourself this morning, we would love to pray with you, to plead alongside you. Please don't hesitate to come up. This brings me to our next steps for today. First one is this. If you have put your faith in Christ, have you considered baptism? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, have you considered baptism? We have resources up front, and we would love to talk with you about what that looks like. So come find one of us after service. We would love to talk with you about how to go about that. Second is this. Are you in a group with other believers who you can lean on and who you can lift up in times of suffering? Right? Peter makes it clear. We should be prepared for suffering. Part of that is we need to be in a group with other believers so that when suffering comes in our life, we have people to lean on. And we get the gift then of doing the same for our brothers and sisters. When life gets hard for those around us, we get to lift them up, which is a gift. If you want more information on how to do this, you can look in your bulletin. It has, members, or has uh, information on small groups, refuge, cross point, men's ministry, women's ministry. Or you can go to the connect table afterwards and Cynthia can give you more information about that. Don't wait. There are no lone wolves. The enemy prowls around looking for someone to devour. We must be prepared knowing that suffering is coming. And all of this, our hope in him is secure. Our joy in him is secure. He is coming again to make all things new. And in him we hope. Church, thank you. If you would stand, we're going to end today in a time of response and singing.